You can turn now to Hebrews chapter 7. I won't comment on that chapter right now. We'll come back to that. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Again, if you have the Pew Bible, it is on page 1004. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for our great high priest. We thank you for these reminders of who he is, God. And as we dive into this passage this morning, as we continue to look at um, this connection with Melchizedek, as we continue to ponder who Christ is as our high priest, God, may we draw near to you in faith and hope, knowing that you are who you say you are, God, that you are good that we have a better hope, a lasting hope. May we rest in that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, show of hands, if you don't mind, how many perfectionists do we have in the room? Yeah, that's a lot. All right. I'm raising my hand too. Um, as you know, uh, you perfectionists and those of you who may be married to perfectionists, um, it does have its downsides. Uh, you can tend to be a little OCD. Uh, you can be a little demanding of others when things don't go perfectly. And I am not in any way seeking to justify those things. Um, but what if at its root, the impulse is something that we're actually hardwired to pursue? A lot has been made in the past decade of these home ancestry DNA tests. Uh, as far as I could tell by doing some research, they first became available in 2012 and really kind of blew up in 2017, like millions and millions of people started taking them. And there's this desire, there's this kind of innate desire that I think a lot of us have to know where did I come from, right? What are my roots? And we want to connect with our roots. I've 
made a lot of jokes before, like when I grow my beard out, like I'm trying to get in touch with my Viking heritage. And, um, and you know, it's fun. It's fun to have those connections to the past and kind of know like who our people were like a long time ago, like generations and generations ago, right? But let's apply that all the way back. If we can trace our ancestry all the way back to our first parents in the garden, then we not only, A, have a lot more in common than we think, but we, B, also have a longing to connect to our roots. Is there not a longing in every human to get back to paradise? In other words, to reach this state of sinless perfection, which was once experienced by our first parents, even if it was only for a brief time. Yesterday, I was in Wapaka uh, for the day. I was speaking at the InterVarsity Winter Conference, speaking to a bunch of college students, and I was not quite uh, done with the sermon yet, so I went to a restaurant called Little Fat Gretchen's, which I know some of you are familiar with, and I was sitting there literally like just typing this intro about perfection and right next to me the waitress drops a knife on the ground and she apologizes to the customer and she said this has been happening all day and then she goes back behind the counter and she said everything i touch everything i do that's all she says like literally all she said to her coworker. everything i touch and everything i do and she was visibly frustrated it was so clear that she couldn't even reach perfection in the simple task of bussing tables, right, at a restaurant. And that really gets to the heart of the human predicament, doesn't it? There is this innate desire for perfection, to not have forks and knives falling on the floor. But we all know that, humanly speaking, in this sin-stained world, perfection by the work of our own hands is unattainable. And for those of us who are perfectionists, that frustrates us to the core, right? We've mentioned already a few times in our series that perfection is a significant theme in Hebrews. We've seen it in chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 5, verse 9, speaking of Jesus being made perfect through suffering and being made perfect as our great high priest. Remember, this is not saying that Jesus wasn't perfect at any point, but that he had to experience suffering and death to bring to completion the work of our salvation that the Father gave him to accomplish. So perfection and completion, it can kind of be translated both of those ways. So that's really what it's talking about with Jesus. And then beginning here in chapter 7, verse 11, all the way through chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, there are eight more references to perfection most of them relating to the need for both the priests and worshipers to be perfected or to be cleansed in order that they might draw near to God. F.F. Bruce in his commentary says that in Hebrews, perfection often means unimpeded access to God and unbroken communion with him. I think that's a great definition of perfection. Unimpeded access to God and unbroken communion with him. That's what our first parents had lost through the fall, and that's what needs to be recovered. And this is really the main thrust of these verses. That's what is being argued here. As verse 11 says, it's being argued that this perfection is not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. And our author puts it here in the form of a question 
to challenge his audience to consider, as we asked last week, where are we anchoring our hope, which we must continue to ask that question. And now we ask the question, how can we draw near to God? How can we draw near to God, genuinely enjoying unimpeded access to God and unbroken communion with him? Was it possible for these early Christians to do that? Is it possible for us today to do that? Well, let's find out. We're going to look at three things here. Again, you have this outline in, this, in your worship guide if you want to follow along with that. We're going to be looking at the need for Jesus' new and perfect priesthood, the basis of Jesus' new and perfect priesthood, and the efficacy of Jesus' new and perfect priesthood. Last week, we saw in verses 1 through 10 that the argument that there was a priesthood superior to that of Levi. And we were introduced to this mysterious biblical character, Melchizedek, who came in Genesis 14, who appeared out of nowhere, who came to Abraham, who blessed Abraham, who received tithes from Abraham. And then after that, he's never heard from again. And there is this reference a thousand years later by David in Psalm 110 to him. But other than that, total silence. Our author here in chapter 7 draws from this account in Genesis 14 to remind his audience that God has been up to something greater than what they imagined. He continues now in verse 11, arguing for the need for Jesus' new and perfect priesthood. And the argument begins with this probing question. He says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, parentheses, for under it the people received the law. If that had been attainable, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now, given what we've seen already in verses 1 through 10, the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Perfection is not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, there is a need for another priesthood. This should be obvious to anyone who has lived under the Levitical priesthood as these early Christians had. Nobody would have said at this time, if it ain't broke, don't fix it regarding the Levitical priesthood. It was broke because it could not perfect the consciences of the worshipers, as our author later argues in chapter 9, verse 9. Next, he addresses the need for a change in the law in verse 12. That change in the law comes with a change in the priesthood. And the priesthood change that we're looking at here was not a change from Melchizedek to Levi, but actually from Levi back to Melchizedek, in a sense, since Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. It's actually a change in the priesthood going back to the original better priesthood. It's going back to the way that things should have been. And the importance of this connection between the law and the priesthood was mentioned in that parenthetical statement in verse 11. It says, under it, the people received the law. Speaking of the priesthood, the law and the priesthood really go hand in hand. They were introduced around the same time. So the question is, now with this new priesthood, what are we to think about the law? And what are we to think about this change that he is suggesting? Is he saying here now that the law of God 
which we talked about at our Sunday evening service a couple weeks ago. The law that we see is somewhat summarily comprehended. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. Is all that just now thrown out the window? The priesthood is gone, so the law just goes with it, and it doesn't matter anymore? That's not what our author is arguing for here. Philip Hughes, in his commentary, is really helpful as he summarizes the relationship between the law and the priesthood as it relates to this change. This is what he writes. In the order of Melchizedek, both law and priesthood are still intimately bound up with each other. Okay, so they're not separated. The law is not done away with. They are still intimately bound up with each other. But now in a relationship of perfection and fulfillment. The precepts regulating the old imperfect order of the priesthood have been set aside together with that priesthood because the long promised new covenant is now a glorious reality. By the grace of God manifested in the person and work of Christ, our Melchizedek, the human situation has undergone a radical transformation. That radical transformation is the good news that sin will have no dominion over us since we are not under law, but under grace, as Paul says in Romans 6.14. The dominion of sin was this constant in-your-face reminder because of the continual sacrificing of animals on the altar. The year-by-year entry of the high priest into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement really magnified the dominion of sin in the life of the people of God. But now that dominion has been destroyed by Jesus, our priest king, which is what our author turns to address in verses 13 and 14. So for the Jews, the legitimacy of the priesthood was really a question of tribal descent. As we mentioned last week, no one actually in the Old Testament served legally as both king and priest. That's because the priests came from the tribe of Levi, and the kings came from the tribe of Judah, as it says here in verse 14. We mentioned last week that King Saul, the first king in Israel, who was actually from the tribe of Benjamin, that he tried to offer a sacrifice because he was impatient. He couldn't wait for Samuel to come and correctly offer the sacrifice. So Saul took it upon himself as king to act as a priest and offer the sacrifice. Samuel arrives and is like, bad news, buddy. You disobeyed God. Now you're going to lose the kingdom. That's when we see the kingdom is transferred over to David, who is from the line of Judah. Now we come to another great example that we saw in our Old Testament reading from 2 Chronicles 26. King Uzziah. King Uzziah was descended from David. King Uzziah was a king in Judah. Here's, I'm going to recap just part of what we read in 2 Chronicles 26. Speaking of King Uzziah, he became proud. It says, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated, right, set apart, holy, they are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. 
tragic result of his actions is that God struck him with leprosy. He died as a leper in a separate house, excluded from the house of the Lord. Think about that imagery the next time you read Isaiah chapter 6. Okay? Uzziah should have had access to the house of the Lord, right? He should have been able to go into the temple. Now, because of his sin, because of his uncleanness and his leprosy, he is barred. In the year that King Uzziah died, right, Isaiah has this vision of God, the king, the rightful king, high and lifted up on his throne. There's this, right, this woe is me, I am unclean among a people of unclean lips. This whole situation with Uzziah is like, is magnified in Isaiah chapter 6, right? The king who took it upon himself, who tried to act unlawfully as a priest, is he's not allowed there anymore, right? It's, just, it's crazy to see that connection with that passage. So that really brings to light here this, this example of someone from Jesus' tribe, from the tribe of Judah, acting out of accord with the law of God and being punished for it. And it is evident, it says in verse 14, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So it is evident that Jesus is a Judite and not a Levite. So there should be this anticipation of a problem here, right? Because Moses said nothing about the possibility of a priest from Judah. So what is the basis of Jesus' priesthood? How can Jesus act as a priest if he is from the tribe of Judah? Like, if you're thinking back to, you know, if they're thinking back to Uzziah, they should be saying, like, man, is, is Jesus going to get struck with leprosy? Like, is God going to judge him for acting as a priest? So that's kind of the, the, the setting here. So what is the basis for Jesus' priesthood? That's what we're going to look at in our next section in verses 15 to 17. The language here in verse 15 is very emphatic. It literally reads, and this is more, even more evident. So the word more is used twice here. It's saying this is very evident. Well, what is so evident here? It's that when another priest arises, okay, when another priest comes on the scene, and this word here for arises is a word that is often used to refer to resurrection. Uh, so there's probably a bit of a wordplay going on here. But Jesus both arises by coming on the scene as the new Melchizedekian priest and by rising from the dead, the basis not being a legal requirement of bodily descent, as it says in verse 16. Again, obviously, because Jesus, he wasn't a Levite, but what does it say? Verse 16, he's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements, so it's not because he was a Levite and could legally operate as a priest, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now, just like there was with arising, there's probably a little bit of a double meaning here uh, with the word indestructible life. Indestructible life is probably also referring to Jesus' resurrection, right? He, he rose from the dead. He rose and has this indestructible life. But probably, and more specifically, in this context, it's, it's speaking of is his eternality, which is seen in verse 17, reminding us and the readers by quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4 again, that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The 
the language going back earlier in the chapter where you know Melchizedek arrives on the scene, uh, right? Verse three, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And as we said, that doesn't mean that Melchizedek wasn't born and didn't actually die. It's just saying we have no record of him. But when we see this uh, resembling the son of God and, and Jesus being in the likeness of Melchizedek, uh, there is to be this connection there. So when we see Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and that he has an indestructible life, we're to think about Melchizedek as this example of this indestructible life, right? That, that his priesthood is forever. So that's kind of what's going on there with, with indestructible life. So Jesus then is the perfect advocate that we need. He is not like the human priests who constantly need to be replaced when they die, right? He is not going to ever have to transition his priesthood to someone else. He is reigning right now on his throne as our forever priest king who is interceding for us and who is ruling and defending us. So our author, he's been building this grand argument by highlighting Melchizedek's priesthood. And then he hits this high note here about how absolutely clear and evident it is that Jesus is the perfect and indestructible fulfillment of the whole Old Testament system. It's as if he's pleading with his readers and pleading with us here today. Don't seek to go back to the old way of doing things. Now that you have been set free and purified by Jesus Christ, your great high priest, don't ever look back. And it's not as if we've, we've been saying this, right? It's not as if this doesn't apply to us today just because we don't actually live under this actual priesthood system that we can fall back on. There are plenty of things that we are tempted to turn back to. And it might not even always be this outwardly, like outwardly idolatrous things, right? It might be as subtle as just an inward trust in our own ability, our own ability to offer pleasing sacrifices to God on our own strength. Like we might sacrifice our time and our talents and our treasures to help other people and to say, I'm good, right? I did that. I, I'm, I did these sacrifices. And we can kind of trust in ourselves a little bit while we say, yeah, we're trusting in Jesus, but we're really kind of trusting in ourselves at the same time. But the message is, is that's not going to cut it, right? We can't rely on anything apart from Jesus. Any work that we bring, anything outside of his work to make us pure and right before God is completely ineffective. So let's wrap it up by looking at the efficacy of Jesus' new and perfect priesthood. Our third point there, the efficacy of Jesus' new and perfect priesthood. The concluding verses in this section complete this nice bookend of verses 11 to 19 by coming back to the theme of perfection. Started off in verse 11, right, by asking the question, if perfection is attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Now, in verse 19, it says, in the parentheses there, for the law made nothing perfect. So the law is unable to make anything perfect, just as the priesthood was unable to make anything perfect. Here in verse 18, it says, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. This former commandment here that is set aside is most likely referring to the specific commandment 
regarding the appointment of priests according to the Levitical descent. The weakness and uselessness to perfect God's people is contrasted with the second half of verse 19, which is really the thrust of this entire passage, and it's really central to the whole letter. We see that a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus is better, right? We've probably said that every single week that we've been in Hebrews. Jesus is better. He is a better high priest who offers a better hope to his people, better than a system that could never perfect those who draw near to God under that old system. Now, through Jesus, the old system is set aside and a new system is put in its place. And this is really going to be the big emphasis for the next three chapters uh, that we'll be in for the next few months, chapters 8, 9, and 10, as we look at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, how the New Covenant is better, is superior to the Old Covenant. So now we can draw near to God because we have experienced a perfect cleansing from sin. Jesus' priesthood is effective where the Levitical priesthood wasn't. Now we have to be clear about this, right? When we say that we have experienced a perfect cleansing from sin. When we say that, we're talking about our justification, right? We're saying that God has cleansed us. God has declared us to be righteous in his sight because of Christ. Our, our sin-stained slate, right, is, is wiped clean. Our sin is, is gone in terms of our standing with God. But as we all know, right, as we've experienced and we trust that that is true, there still is this need for ongoing cleansing in our sanctification where we seek to put our sin to death and we seek to confess our sins and to continually turn from our sins in repentance. Our justification does not mean that we're never going to sin anymore, right? We are perfectly cleansed from our sins in a legal sense, right? That we're right before God, we're reconciled to God, we're justified with God, but we're still going to continue to sin, right? We're still going to struggle in this life. And so there is a need for this continual ongoing cleansing. And that is really part of what it means to draw near to God. We need to continue to draw near to God because we're sinners. We need to continue to come to him for that ongoing cleansing because we can't achieve it on our own. We can't say, well, I'm going to go over here and work on my cleansing, right? And then I'll go approach God after I've, I've got my stuff together. That's completely backwards. Again, the, the vision in Isaiah 6, right? We need to go before him. We need to go before the holy, holy, holy God and say, I'm unclean, right? I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My lips are unclean. God, continue by your grace to cleanse me. I know that I'm ultimately cleansed, right? I'm right with you. That's why I can approach you to continue to ask for cleansing. This is huge. We have to get this straight. If we get that order mixed up, we're in deep trouble. We don't come to God on our own merits. We don't come to him because we've gotten our house in order, right? We go completely helpless, completely in need of his grace. This reminder here that we can draw near to God through Jesus, it pretty much comes right in the center of this entire section, starting in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10, verse 25. That whole section is on the priesthood of Jesus 
which begins and ends with an invitation to draw near to God. Listen to these verses, one in chapter 4, verse 16, and then in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. These are the bookends of this whole section on the priesthood. Listen to the common language here. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This here speaks of our ability to confidently approach God in prayer because Jesus is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. With confidence, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Okay, that's how this whole section starts about Jesus' high priesthood, this exhortation. That's going to end here in chapter 10, verses, it ends around chapter, verse 25, but right before that ending, kind of this whole section sums this up. It says, since we have confidence, right? We see that word again. So we begin by drawing near with confidence. We're reminded at the end of this section, since we have confidence, so he's saying, remember what I told you in the beginning when we started talking about Jesus' high priesthood, since we have that confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, the theme in both of those is drawing near to God with confidence. And the second in chapter 10 there, it even starts to get into this this idea of, of cleansing, right? Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies are washed with pure water. We can have confidence because of the superiority of Jesus and of his sacrifice to draw near to God, fully cleansed by his effective work. This is not just some theoretical information. This is the very core of the gospel. And this must be life transforming for us. We either embrace Jesus, this better hope, and approach God confidently because of who he is and what he's done for us, or we just pretend and we go through the motions while relying on some inferior and ineffective hope. Brothers and sisters, there is but one hope for us to be able to confidently draw near to God, and his name is Jesus. He laid down his life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, and through him, we can come, we can come perfectly cleansed, and we can experience true and lasting joy in the presence of our Father. The question is, will you draw near to him today? Let us pray. God, we need your grace. We need Jesus, our high priest, whose indestructible life was laid down for us, who rose again, who conquered the grave, who showed that sin shall no longer have dominion over us because we are not under the law, but we are under grace. 
God, may we live as a people under grace. May we live as a people who draw near in hope because of our great high priest, who come confidently and boldly before the throne of grace because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. God, let us not be those who shrink back. Let us not be those who go off to the side and and try to clean our own lives up, try to get our own act together before we attempt to approach you. God, let us come boldly, even in the midst of our sin and brokenness, knowing that you alone can purify us. You alone can cleanse us. God, thank you that this new way is opened up and that we can come. God, let us draw near to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.